0: If you have an early morning flight or meeting, sure, you might check and recheck your alarm clock. But if you do it 30 times, you could have a problem. That's so OCD, your spouse may joke. But OCD is nothing to laugh about. Good morning. I'm George Bolarchy, And this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM. And WFUV.org. On this morning's show, the facts about obsessive compulsive disorder. With us this morning is Dr. Blair Simpson. She's director of the Anxiety Disorders Clinic and of the OCD Research Program at Columbia University. Dr. Simpson, good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Dr. Mora Rin. She's Deputy Chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Intervention Research at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Dr. Wren, welcome to Cityscape. Good morning. Jeff Bell is a news anchor at KCBS Radio in San Francisco. He's one of the millions of Americans who suffer from obsessive-compulsive disorder, and he's written a book about his life called Rewind, Replay, Repeat. Jeff, hello. Good
1: morning, George. Thanks for having me.
0: On the phone with us is Melissa. Melissa is the parent of a child with OCD. Melissa, welcome to Cityscape.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Now, obviously, we're referring to you just as Melissa because we know that... Children, even high school kids, can be very mean when it comes to things like this, huh, Melissa?
2: Yes. Not very understanding at times.
0: Let's just start off very basic. What is obsessive-compulsive disorder? Dr. Simpson?
3: It's a disorder that's characterized by people having obsessions and compulsions. And what I mean by an obsession is an intrusive thought, image, or impulse that's repetitive, intrusive, distressing. And what I mean by a compulsion is something that the person does, either in their head or in the world, over and over and over again to try to reduce distress. Now, normal people can have the occasional intrusive thought, and we all know people who have funny little habits. That is an OCD. OCD is when people spend hours obsessing and compulsing. It's time-consuming, it's distressing, and it
4: interferes with their
3: function.
0: And it can happen at any age?
4: Certainly the age range you typically hear about is starting potentially as young as four, and right all the way through childhood, up through adolescence into adulthood. I've had parents say to me, you know, I think I noticed something in my child, even at the age of two, some behaviors that seemed different or unique or people noticed, but we weren't quite sure what was happening and didn't become more clear until the child was around four or five years of age.
0: Jeff, I know for you, it started very early as well. You were what, like eight years old?
1: I was eight years old. My earliest memories uh, tend to be around OCD checking, which is one of many compulsions, And as a child, I would rewind, replay, and repeat these very vivid sequences in my head, the most mundane portions of my day, trying to remove all the uncertainty, which I now know was a, a compulsion. Uh, back in the day, my folks had no real framework to work with. They had no reason to suspect this was OCD or any kind of an anxiety disorder. The running joke was uh, Jeff just gets worried when he has nothing to worry about.
0: You actually had something happen to you when you were eight years old. Somebody screamed out your name and you couldn't figure
1: out who that was. And that really bothered you for quite some time. Yeah. And it was a very telling moment for me, George, because I remember so vividly my mother coming into my room on the third or fourth day that I was uh, wide awake obsessing about what this was and trying to, again, mentally recreate the sequence in my mind. I could see the the car going by. I could hear the kid yelling hello, um, but I couldn't put it all together. And I remember Mom saying to me, are you afraid that this kid was trying to hurt you? And I said, no. Were you afraid that he was trying to scare you? No. And then she asked me something that was really profound. She said, why do you need to know? And I couldn't answer that. And, and, and to this day, I think that that was one of the first signs that something was amiss in my life because I couldn't explain why I needed to know who this kid was. Uh, but I knew I did need to know. And, and all these years later, I know this is classic OCD. It's, it's, it's trying to remove uncertainty. Dr. Simpson, you're shaking your head. This sounds very
0: familiar to you.
3: Absolutely. And at the same time, I think it's very important to point out that all OCD doesn't look the same what he's describing is a certain form of OCD, but OCD comes in different flavors. And so there are Mm -hmm. different types of obsessions and different types of compulsions. And a single individual may have more than one type, but they can also really differ. So the classic one is, let's say, intrusive fears of contamination and washing, or another one is intrusive fears of harm and checking. But then we could all fill in, you know, there are 15 different other versions of that that we could talk to you about. And so that's important, which is all OCD doesn't look the same.
0: Melissa, what is your daughter's situation?
2: Uh, My daughter uh, first demonstrated symptoms at the age of nine. She would ask me if um, there were any ticks on her body after a bath. And I would look at her and I would say, but you were on cement all day long. Ticks don't live in cement. And there was a distinct lack of logic to the issues that she was raising. She does have the hand-washing, the contamination concerns, and she does wash her own laundry, and I'm not allowed to touch certain things because they're considered contaminated. And um, it's a struggle for her because she's a very sweet and affectionate person. She wants to hug her friends. She desperately wants to hug her friends. And she's too uncomfortable with the idea. It's, she just can't get past that.
0: When did you realize that your daughter had OCD?
2: She was about 11 in 2004, and we had a particularly bad year. Some family members passed away who were very close to her. We had a terrible car accident, and the lack of control over her world became something she simply couldn't deal with anymore. By December of 2004, I had a very clear diagnosis from the therapist in our area at the time and went about trying to find out more about it.
0: What causes OCD? What causes someone to develop these obsessions and compulsions?
3: Well, the simple answer is we don't completely know what causes it. And the more complicated answer goes a little deeper than that, which is on the one hand, and this is, you know, I think most people would agree with this, is all the behavior we do, my being able to speak with you on the radio, in the end, normal and abnormal behavior is caused by the brain. And so obviously on that level, obsessions and compulsions are, thought to be due to some abnormality in the brain circuits that underlie these sorts of physiological processes of, of screening information coming in and telling you when you've done something enough, et cetera, et cetera. And there are studies to show that people with OCD have differences in their brains, abnormalities in their brains, when compared to people without OCD. And particular areas of the brain have been focused on as those abnormalities. However, those studies don't say how you got the abnormality in your brain In the first place. So that's another level of thinking about cause. Like, how did my brain get like this in the first place? And there again, we have a lot of sort of clues and suggestions, but nothing definitive. So there's some, you know, there's definitely a sense of maybe some people have bad genes, maybe there's a problem in development, some people have new onset OCD after a neurological insult. There's some data in kids about autoimmune or infectious causes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just like there are many causes of hypertension. There might be many causes of how you get these abnormal brain circuits. And in the end, you know, most of us think it's probably, for any individual, it's some combination of genes and environment.
0: That being said, do we see OCD run in families?
3: Absolutely. If you take someone with OCD and you look in their family, those are called family studies. In general, sort of the rate of OCD in the general population is something like 1.6% two percent, something like that. But if you look in the families of people with those, again, you take someone with OCD and you look in their family members, the rates of OCD in those families is closer to 10 percent. So there's definitely a sense that it comes in families. But again, it's never so simple. There's a suggestion that, well, it's maybe only some families, and there's an idea that the earlier onset of OCD may be more familial and then there're later onsets of OCD which are called sporadic. People have no family member, have never seen anyone in their family with any of it, but they can also have OCD.
0: Jeff, are you aware of anyone in your family with OCD?
1: George, I have to answer that one delicately. Um and I'm going to I'm going to kind of swing with this a little bit and, and tell you that in my travels uh, around the country over the past year talking to uh, a number of audiences about OCD that I have found more often than not that there are family ties. Um and that is the situation in, in my family, and I'd I prefer not to be any more specific than that, but um, I have found in talking to dozens and dozens of obsessive compulsives across the country that there is, in fact, this family tie.
0: Melissa, do you see that? And if you don't want to get too personal, I understand, but do you see any more of this in your family?
2: Oh, yes. Yeah. There's nobody left alive for me to offend, but yes.
0: <laughs> Dr. Wren, you work with Melissa's daughter.
4: Right, that's right. They already had quite a bit of information already just from the past history and the previous clinicians that have done a very nice job to able to help. Meli- and Melissa actually had done a lot of work already searching for herself and, and partly figured it out prior to that. So they already came to me sort of armed with a lot of knowledge uh, Melissa, both her daughter, are very educated about it and were seeking me out for some alternative types of treatments. But, um, you know, a lot of times it can go for a very long period of time of not being diagnosed. A lot of, you know, particularly with adolescents or even younger children, they, children may not have awareness of it that they're actually having this. They may not have the cognitive sort of connection to of what's going on or understand completely what the anxiety is about as it relates to the rituals. And then adolescents can be very secretive about it because there they start having a sense of, well, this is something I'm a little different from these other, my my peers, and I don't want people to find out about this, so sometimes parents can actually be surprised they may notice a little you know he or she's a little anxious, a little tense about certain things, but not realizing how impairing or difficult difficult time the adolescent may be having. I'm curious, though, what
0: you do in the doctor's office because you can't take a blood test to find this out.
4: What you do is you interview
3: people and you talk to them and you ask them the right questions. And obviously, you know, what I was thinking as you're speaking about it, Maura, is that there's certain types of OCD symptoms that I think are particularly difficult for people to talk about. So some OCD patients have intrusive sexual images or thoughts that are really make them very anxious. It's not anything they want to do and are really sort of, if you will, culturally completely inappropriate. And they don't really want to tell anyone about that or intrusive thoughts about hurting or harming one of their family members. These are the thoughts that often they just hide or they think, oh my gosh, I'm that bad person. So the point being is to be able to interview someone and get these symptoms, you have to generate a lot of trust um, so that the person feels that they can talk about these things that have remained hidden for sometimes quite a long time.
1: Jeff, how old
0: were you when you got that official diagnosis?
1: I was 29 years old, and I I should mention that I was misdiagnosed twice, and and a big part of my outreach these days is just doing what I can to help spread the word about what OCD is and what the proper treatment process is. Uh, You're you're dealing with a couple of professionals today who know how to treat OCD. Unfortunately, there is still to this day a a fairly sizable sector in, in the mental health profession that... Uh, is treating OCD in ways that have not been scientifically proven. I was told I had a fear of success, for example, and I underwent a a bunch of traditional psychotherapy, which has uh, not been proven to be effective in the treatment of OCD. And it was only when the therapist I was working with took vacation all those years ago that the investigative reporter in me took over, fortunately, and I stumbled across a great book called The Boy Who Couldn't Stop Washing by Dr. Judith Rappaport. And in reading that book, it was the very first time that I realized three things. One, that I'm not alone. Two, that there's a name for this uh, disorder. And three, and most importantly, that there is a treatment process.
0: Both doctors here are nodding their heads.
1: Right.
4: This is a com- yeah. I think this is a common story, unfortunately, that we, uh, that we do hear that people feel a little lost for a while or get various different diagnoses. I've had... Young people be given the diagnosis of being actually psychotic, or in fact that their child was had autism and so forth, and just sort of when the treatments don't work, or there's you know the child's not doing well, they keep seeking. Some parents get exhausted. And I don't know what they. Some parents probably don't keep looking, but some parents keep looking until they sort of finally find the right answer.
3: And part of it, I think, you know, these days a lot of psychiatric care is actually being done by primary care doctors or family physicians, and I don't really think they get the education of sorting out depression from anxiety, and then all the different v- Versions of anxiety there is. So I have OCD adults who are diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, but no one got to the place of OCD as a distinct type of anxiety disorder with different types of treatments than, let's say, how you would treat social anxiety disorder or phobias.
1: And George, it's interesting too. Um, I, I, I'm tending to find that one of the great frustrations uh, amongst obsessive compulsives in the community is this uh, this the fact that OCD is becoming part of the vernacular in a very Uh, generalized way, and and often in a very off-base way, which is, yeah, he's acting so O.C. or O.C.D. And, And, of course, there is a continuum with O.C.D. or any disorder, but I think too often we in the media even are guilty of portraying the disorder as something on a continuum where somebody who has some issues with wanting to wash their hands after dinner is lumped in the same bucket, if you will, as somebody who can't stop washing their hands after 30 tries. Mm -hmm. Well, we see this even in Hollywood. The question I probably get more than any out there is, hey, Jeff, what do you think of the show Monk? Um, Mm -hmm. Because that show is so popular. And and my response is typically something like this. I think it's great that it's out there because it's raising the level of awareness and it's creating dialogue. Um, Unfortunately, and I have no problem laughing at myself. I tend to do that quite a bit with this disorder, and I think it's healthy. But unfortunately, sometimes a show like that won't portray the agony um, and and won't, in my opinion, spend enough time talking about the hope in terms of getting better.
3: And I think the issue of suffering, I mean, that's Mm. the thing is people joke about, you know, you're so obsessive. I, and I think sometimes it's ignorance. Like if we were with someone who was dying of terminal cancer, we wouldn't say, "Oh, I'm going to die this weekend with all the work I have to do." And I think in a similar way, I think people who haven't seen people with OCD and haven't seen the suffering, I think, are, wouldn't, wouldn't, if they did. I don't. I'm not sure they'd use, "Oh, you're so obsessive," quite so loosely.
0: This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and it's WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boracki. This morning, we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder with a panel of experts. With us is Dr. Blair Simpson. She's director of the Anxiety Disorders Clinic and of the OCD Research Program at Columbia University. Also with us is another doctor, Dr. Maura Wren. She's deputy chief of child and adolescent psychiatry intervention research at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. And with us is Jeff Bell. He's a news anchor at KCBS Radio in San Francisco. He suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder. And on the phone with us is Melissa. She's a parent of a child with OCD. And I'm sure you can understand she only wants to refer to herself as Melissa to protect her daughter. Melissa, how old is your daughter now again? 14. And how is she dealing with this?
2: I am so proud of her and how she meets the challenge of every single day. Um, There are times when We know, for example, that we're going to go into the city, which is another kind of contamination from her everyday contamination, and we have a whole separate set of clothes for that. But, you know, I've asked her many times, you know, we need to do this. Can you come up with a solution that you will be okay with? And invariably, when I leave it to her to find some way, we find some way where she talks it out and we find a solution. And she's able to do the sorts of things that she wants to do, whether it's going to a dance or going to a concert or going into Manhattan. You know, I'm just terribly proud of her. And she does things that I would never have the nerve to do. She gets up on stage. She sings. She dances. (laughs) It's Just like, you couldn't pay me money to do that.
0: Does she feel, though, that she has to hide this from her friends, or can she talk to them about it now?
2: Um, she has a very small group of trusted friends who know about her issues. She does not share this with the general public. She does not tell everybody. Um, there are relatives, close relatives, who don't know what her problem is because you know, they've made it clear that they believe this is my fault. So we, we don't discuss it with everybody.
0: I want to try to understand the point when someone actually goes to seek help and when you should make that decision.
3: Again, I see mostly adults. It would be very interesting to hear what Morris says about children, but in adults it's usually pretty straightforward because it's very distressing and it's interfering with your functioning. Um,
4: and so I think it's a pretty straightforward call. It's actually, it is similar to children and adolescents as, w- as well. I think, you know, I, years ago was the thought was that it was a rare disorder in children and adolescents, and in fact it's not. We have studies that show that it is very frequent, uh, similar to adults, and it's the same issue when it gets in the way of life and functioning and doing all the things that you want to do. And the one thing I want to add to that is that what can happen, what Melissa just mentioned, the parent feeling blamed. Parents and and the child may hide hide this, hide it from their. F- pediatrician hide it from other family members because they do feel it's something they've done wrong or they haven't handled the child right or the young person feels that like there's something really wrong they don't want anybody to know and families can really suffer in silence and it really can impact the life not only the child but some parents have told me they've lost their job because they've been you know involved in the rituals of their child at home and not being able to get out of the house or get the child to go to school and it takes many many years before they finally actually um, seek out help for this
3: I have a particular experience of this as an adult because I see people who, for a variety of reasons, didn't seek out help earlier on. Either no one knew what it was, they got the wrong diagnosis, help wasn't available, and there could be many reasons why they didn't. And I see them in their adulthood, where the OCD symptoms have really derailed their life. So they still have their symptoms, but now, for example, they may not have finished high school, they may not have finished college, they may never have gotten into a romantic relationship, they may not have gotten ever to the job they want. So here they are in their 30s or 40s, derailed, because of their symptoms from earlier. And so I always have a sense of, well, gee, we can do something about your symptoms, but we also, how do we get your life back on track? And some things are harder to go back and redo. Jeff, you have a
0: successful career as a broadcaster in California. How have you been able to achieve your status despite dealing with the symptoms of OCD?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting. I've lived quite an elaborate double life for most of my career. On the one hand, I, I can get behind a microphone and talk to tens of thousands of people every day. That's the easy part for me. Um, for so many years, the, the difficulty challenge was just getting myself into the studio. Um, I have classic harm obsessions, uh, as Dr. Simpson outlined earlier, meaning I'm worried about unknowingly harming somebody else through my negligence. And for me, driving was a huge issue because, and again, this is a classic pattern, every pothole becomes potentially somebody I ran over. So I would literally swing the car back around the block and check on it. In the early phases of my career, I was a reporter for KCBS. And as you can imagine, um, I was charged essentially with getting out to the scene of a breaking news story and telling the story to our listeners. Well, now, if you can imagine uh, a very visible KCBS news van in San Francisco essentially driving in circles around downtown San Francisco, checking every pothole that I've run over, it did not make it easy for me to get out to stories. And ultimately... I wound up parking the car just blocks from the station and taking taxi cabs out there. Uh, This was before I got the help that allowed me to start putting things back together again.
0: I know there was also a point in your life where you started to make mistakes in the job because you were obsessing.
1: Yes. um, It became very distracting. Um, uh, Mental checking has always been my predominant compulsion, again, trying to uh, check on these harm obsessions. And so I would be in a studio when I should be concentrating on an interview or a live news story I'm reading and, again, get myself caught up in mentally reviewing things or oftentimes physically checking things where I would leave the studio to go physically check something and certainly became uh, a big hindrance in, in my career.
0: Melissa, I'm curious what school is like for your daughter. Is she able to focus and do well?
2: She is able to focus, but there are a couple of things that have made that possible, and um, I think it's very important to note what some of those are. One of them is that I think parents should not be afraid of having their child labeled if the label is the right label. And the other thing is to make sure that you make your child's school an ally, um, to make them part of the treatment team. Uh, my daughter has a, an accommodation plan with her school. Her school is very well aware of her issues. Her guidance counselor has a release to speak with her psychologist. Ultimately, I want for my child to be a successful, happy, functioning adult, and you need to have the right tools to get your child to that place.
0: Let's talk about treatment. How do you treat OCD. Dr. Simpson?
3: Well, there are two first-line treatments for OCD, whether you're a, ki- you're a kid or whether you're a grown-up, and one of them is treatment with a class of medications called serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and that includes clomipramine, which is a tricyclic antidepressant but is also a serotonin reuptake inhibitor but also does other stuff, as well as what are called the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and that, those are the medications like fluoxetine, fluvoxamine, known maybe more commonly in the public as things like Prozac, would be a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. That's one treatment. The other treatment is a very specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, cognitive behavioral therapy is batted around and there are lots of different forms of cognitive behavioral therapy, but the one with the strongest evidence base for the treatment of OCD is a very specific version called exposure and response prevention. And it's a very specific treatment where you first make a, uh, you really understand what the person's fearing. So for example, if it's fears of harm, I'm gonna do something wrong. And you make sort of a list of the sorts of situations that trigger the maximum anxiety from, you know, nothing to 100, all the way to the top. And in parallel, you figure out all the things the person's doing to check or to whatever their rituals is. Typically in harm, it might be checking to try to reassure themselves that they didn't like going around around that circle to reassure themselves that they didn't create that harm. And then you, in a very systematic, specific way, you go up that hierarchy with the patient and do what are called exposures, where you trigger them, you trigger their anxiety to those feared stimuli, whatever they are, starting at about 50, about halfway up. You do 50s, then you do 60, you know, literally in that sort of stepwise way, while really working with them not to do their rituals. And if it sounds tough it is tough. I say to my patients, it's like boot camp. I mean, it's really tough because what you're asking a person to do is to face their worst, ultimate worst fear. And you're saying to them, don't worry if you do this. In fact, the bad things that happen that you fear won't happen. And in fact, you won't stay anxious forever if you don't do your ritual. But what do they have but basically trust in you to sort of start that path through,
4: you know, a very difficult place.
0: Dr. Rin, do you approach it the same way?
4: Yes, it's the same type, type of treatments, just more appropriate for children and adolescents and trying to work with them to do these type of exposures can be sometimes a little more challenging for um, children and adolescents. But it's the same key thing, as, as Blair's saying. You come up with, you know, their hierarchy of things that are most difficult and try to get them to expose themselves to those situations.
1: Jeff, have you gone through all of this? I have, in fact. And um, a, a big part of my message these days in outreach is, is somewhat of a tough love message to the OCD community. Uh, certainly on on my side of it, which is this is really, really hard work, what the doctors have described there, this ERP. And really what I'm hoping to provide, if anything, in the community is a motivational layer um, in terms of of some reasons for doing the hard work because I learned the hard way. Um, I paid lip service to this for a number of years as I write in my book, Um, and and you can't get better even if you have all the tools if you don't apply them. And, and so, really, what you need to do is get in there and face those fears. And as Dr. Simpson uh, so eloquently put it, I mean, that, that's a tall order. I mean, that, that's asking someone to face their worst fears. So, I'm here to tell you the process does work, but it only works when the client is 100% involved in the process. And that does require doctors' understanding, the, the degree of difficulty that uh, is involved with this process.
0: Melissa, do you do things at home to help your daughter every day?
2: I do. One of the things that we started when she first got her diagnosis was we got a couple of books by Tamar Chansky. One is um, Freeing Your Child from Anxiety, and the other is Freeing Your Child from OCD. And we read those books together. I didn't read all of the parts to her because um, OCD children tend to be very suggestive. Um, you know, they can take on things that they might not otherwise take on just because you read it to them. And uh, we went through quite a long process when my daughter first went on medication of trying to make sure which medication was right. And um, I'd like to emphasize that for a long time, I thought that parents who put their children on medication were simply lazy to anybody I ever offended by saying that to, I don't think I ever did, but I'd like to apologize, because it, until it's your child and you see how they they are suffering, you don't real, you know, you will do anything to make them a little more comfortable in their own body, to make it that they are not, you know, ridiculed by other children. I think that that's been some of our process as we work our way through this.
0: Is it possible for OCD to go away by itself?
3: You know, it's interesting. There's, um, there's this very lovely study, 40-year follow-up study, of a father and a son, I think it is. The father interviewed the patients when they were 18 or 17, and then the son and the father followed them up 40 years later. And so it's really the sort of best, I, I would say, follow long-term, longitudinal, naturalistic follow-up study, but it's sort of complicated by they did get treatment along the way. And the bottom line of that study was there were some people who seemed to get better, but it's a small percentage that for the vast majority of people with OCD, um, at least that approach us in clinical treatment, once they have this disorder, it tends to be a chronic waxing and waning condition. Now, again, it's not absolute. Some people do have sort of episodic versions of OCD, and there is some people who, who seem to go through it. But in general, unfortunately... It, once it comes, it stays. I, I, want to make a, I want to sort of emphasize another thing because I think it's so important to have a message of hope. There are treatments for this condition. And at the same time, for the people who are listening to the show who have OCD, who've done everything, who've been on the SRI, who've done the CBT, and who still aren't better, I think it's also important for us in the professional community to recognize that while our treatments help, can help many people, our treatments do not cure all people. And there are, in fact, the medications, you know, some people have a fabulous response to the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, some people have no response, and some people have a partial response. Likewise, the cognitive behavioral therapy, when you can do it and it works, and you can find a skilled therapist and you can afford it, and you know, (laughs) there are a lot of pieces there, it can be a fabulous treatment. And yet again, not everybody responds, and I think that we don't know why that is, and you know, a lot of the research that Maura and I are doing at Columbia are, you know, both trying to tweak our current treatments to see how do we make them better, trying to figure out augmentation treatments for people when their first treatment isn't enough, trying to figure out what causes OCD, because if we understood better what caused it at the level of the brain, maybe we could come up with new and better targets for treatment, because our goal is not just that people respond to treatment, get a little better. We, I would just love to be able to put you know get all my patients to minimal symptoms and we have it it does work for some but it doesn't work for all
0: you mentioned the affordability factor do insurance companies cover the cost of ocd treatment
3: what i know from providers is depending on the insurance plan depending what it is sometimes you can get some reimbursement but not necessarily for the version of cognitive behavioral therapy that's most effective
0: well that's all the time we have let's get the thank yous out of the way Thank you to Dr. Blair Simpson. Dr. Simpson is the director of the Anxiety Disorders Clinic and of the OCD Research Program at Columbia. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Maura Rin is deputy chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Intervention Research at the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Dr. Rin, thanks for coming in.
4: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you to Melissa. She's a parent of a child with OCD. Melissa, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. And I need to thank Jeff Bell. He's a news anchor at KCBS Radio in San Francisco. He suffers from obsessive obsessive-compulsive disorder, and he's written a memoir called Rewind, Replay, Repeat. Jeff, thank you.
1: George, thanks so much for having me and for this opportunity to to help raise some awareness about what this disorder is all about.
0: And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at wfuv.org. My thanks to producer
2: Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend.